Welcome to Just Thinking with hosts Dara Harrison and Virgil Walker, bringing you week-to-week cultural apologetics as well as social issues from a biblical worldview. This is Just Thinking. Let's think. We're back. It's another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. I am Virgil Walker, and my dear brother Daryl Harrison is off tonight. Uh, It is interesting, man, as I prepare for the show, I always tell the folks on our team that I do not enjoy going solo uh, on these shows. Let me tell you, one of the things that I absolutely love about what Daryl and I get to do on Just Thinking is... It's not for me. The subjects that we talk about are absolute blast to talk about. Uh, The topics that we engage are fun, uh, interesting, engaging. But I really uh, thoroughly enjoy just chopping it up with my brother. And and I think that for the most part, those of you who who listen to Just Thinking, you recognize that. I think you you appreciate the fact that when you're listening to Just Thinking, you're getting kind of a feel of. Of two brothers who you know who genuinely have a have you know affection for each other, w- talking about subject matter that that is of interest to you, and you get to kind of sit sit in and listen, and uh, so I, I really enjoy that. Now again, tonight it's just me. You guys have got me and uh, Omaha here in the saddle trying to make it happen, uh, which I'm excited to do for you, and I'm excited about the topic that I'm going to talk about. But it's always a, an, an extra benefit, an extra blessing, if you will. When when my brother Daryl is is with me, what's interesting or funny to me is in real life, uh, Daryl and I uh, are are actually opposite than the roles that we play on the show. Um, if if you're brand new to just thinking, this might be of interest to you, Daryl. Uh, go back and listen to one of the other shows, and you'll kind of see uh, Daryl. Daryl, I always say, I always tell people, Daryl is kind of Batman, and I get to play Robin, kind of <laughs> kind of the background. And uh, in real life, we're kind of the opposite. Uh, Daryl has admitted, at least on the show, at least, that he prefers the background. He's more of a writer who prefers kind of the background. And, and I'm more of a of kind of a, a, a I don't know, about speaker or, or, or teacher, preacher, more, I'd say preacher more than anything else, who loves the foreground, who loves to be out, out front. I, I enjoy kind of doing the street preaching, street evangelism, kind of being out there. And so... When we get on this show, we actually take opposite roles. And can I tell you, it, it's, it's awesome. It's a real benefit for me to be in a space where I don't necessarily have to be the guy doing the heavy lifting, uh, where I can be the guy who, and Daryl kind of allows me to take some, some pot shots. I get to, I get to do the, the Hammond B3 moments, right? Daryl <laughs> has done all the heavy lifting, all the, you know, all the heavy work and, and the research, and, and I get to kind of kind of amplify what he's shared or what he said. And so this is always, every time I jump on, is kind of a unique experience for me uh, with regard to leading the show. And uh, and so it presents its own unique challenges. And, and Daryl and, and I both really do feel like with Just Thinking, we've really tried to raise the bar of, of our, look, I, I, I had a bar reference. See, uh, Dwayne will be happy with me. <laughs> we try to raise the bar uh, of, of what you come to expect in a podcast. We really want you to come away with uh, knowledge you didn't have, otherwise information that you would not have had had you not checked in with us. We try to go do some research that maybe you were not aware of. And so when you listen to Just Thinking, we're hoping that that's more of your experience. And so 
I would. I, I just thought I'd take just a minute for our brand new listeners uh, who might enjoy learning a little bit more about the show, about our personalities, and, and, and I would encourage you, go back and listen. If you're brand new, if this is the, your first show, go back and listen to the previous show, which I'll mention here in a bit. Um, go check that out. Uh, man, we just enjoy what we do here uh, at Just Thinking. So I, I, I want to just mention Daryl's writing as well. If you haven't checked out justthinking.me, where Daryl does all of his his blog writing, I would encourage you uh, to do so. We discuss, again, a wide range of topics uh, that we encounter here on the Just Thinking podcast. And a lot of those are, are, are the, the basis of those are from what, uh, what Daryl writes in that space. So uh, the title of this episode is Black Nationalism and White Fatherlessness. Black Nationalism and White Fatherlessness. And as I put that title uh, to our folks, uh, the, the the folks on our team, uh, they were like, "What? What in the world are you doing? And why why are you coming up with that?" And so, uh, before you before you you go, you know, you, I, I lose you. Stay with me, and I'll build a case for why I why I chose that title and where I decided to go. Let me start by saying, on our previous episode, uh, we discussed the topic of one church and one body. And we talked about the two mass shooting incidents uh, that occurred in El Paso, Texas, and in Dayton, Ohio. And both Daryl and I received a great deal of feedback and thanks from many of you for tackling such a challenging topic from a biblical perspective. And we really, in that episode, covered a wide range of information, everything from, uh, you know, kind of the issues around um, uh, the, um, oh gosh, uh, Shooting, uh, gun control, that's the word I'm looking for, issues around gun control, issues around sin, uh, intent of the heart, and uh, and the gospel and its impact on those issues. And so we, we tackled a lot of that information, and you really would not uh, know that from uh, the one church, one body uh, aspect of what we talked about there. So I, I want to encourage you to go check that out. Uh, take a look and take a listen to that. And uh, as, as we walk through that, so both Daryl and I received a great deal of feedback from, from many of you on that. And we're, we're, we're forever grateful that with that, with regard to that. One of the things that, that I noticed uh, about that particular event, the particular event in El Paso, uh, that was, that, that was that it was actually connected to white nationalism. It was connected to white nationalism. And, this, of course, was due to the fact that the gunman uh, in the shooting in El Paso, the gunman specifically told police that he had targeted Hispanic persons. He said, you know, that was his goal. That was what he did. He walked in uh, to a Walmart, shot up the Walmart, and he told police that he, you know, that was that was his attempt. One of the things that I thought about with regard to that um, particular incident, I think the one in Dayton, Ohio, uh, the gunman actually uh, was was killed, either shot himself or was killed. The gunman in El Paso actually paused and had a moment to reflect and made the decision to, to, to give himself up. And in that is a hope, uh, is a hope that that perhaps, um, you know, redemption will take place. In other words, God will get a hold of his heart. Uh, he he. There was a moment of pause, at least for him, uh, not to end his life and enter eternity with that. Uh, that that stain on 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 his uh, on on his on his life, but rather with the hope that perhaps the gospel uh, can still indeed have impact and maybe maybe turn 
uh, a bad situation around. And, and again, that's so difficult, even as I say that, for some to think about. Man, the shooter who, you know, who deserves the death penalty. Um, and and I, I would I would concur with that, right? And, and this life definitely deserves the death penalty uh, for the taking of a life. But the opportunity for for redemption, uh, for his soul to be saved, for him to come to Christ is definitely available now to him. Uh, since he didn't, you know, didn't commit suicide or or get shot by by police, but again, I'm 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 digressing. One of the things again that I noticed was was the, the nature of uh, of the El Paso shooting um, connected immediately to white nationalism, and 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 again, it, it was because of the fact that that the shooter had written what was called a screed, an S C R E E D. Now, I had to look this up because I had no idea what a screed was, and it's just a lengthy speech or writing uh, that someone wrote that's shorter, I guess, than a manifesto, uh, but it's called a screed. Now, while the media quickly attached white nationalism to what they believed to be an epidemic rise in violence, right? This is a nationwide epidemic rise in violence that the media is automatically attaching to white nationalism. This shooter, and, and I don't mention his name on purpose, this shooter, he seemed to be a lone actor. He was not associated with any organized effort to advance the cause of a group on the basis of ethnicity. Now, still, with 20 people dead and another 26 people injured, the issue, I think, is worth examining. We touched on it. We talked about it. Again, we talked about that particular issue. We talked about a number of different issues around uh, around one church, one body. Uh, I want to encourage you to to check that out, to listen to that um, and uh, that that particular episode. We covered a wide range of of, of subject matter on that particular episode. Um, we we covered that ground and, and talked about that particular incident in brief, and we just kind of prayed for the folks that that were involved in that. Just as that thing was unfolding, we had another incident, right? Um, People this past week were dealing with the horrors of a shooting that happened in Philadelphia. And this was another shooting of six police officers. Now, the coverage of this incident did not receive as high profile coverage in that the victims in this shooting were armed police officers. Now, these officers who were armed, they approached a a a a home uh, where they were delivering a search warrant. And as they were delivering this this arrest warrant, they they were delivering an arrest warrant. As they delivered this arrest warrant, uh, the person who was to receive this arrest warrant uh, was just loaded for bear and began spraying the officers with bullets. And six of them were actually rushed to the hospital. Well, you can imagine as this was taking place that other officers uh, showed up on the on the scene. And following the shooting of the officers, a gun battle ensued where multiple officers were pinned down behind their vehicles for hours as the assailant held two officers and a number of other victims before later on releasing them. Now, this story in Philadelphia, the story in El Paso, two different stories, one one white male, one uh, black male uh, involved. And, and I bring up these two stories for a reason. And, and it, it is definitely not for the purpose of simply pointing out that one was white and one was black. Right. In fact, that's not at all what I found interesting about the story. What caught my attention about the, the first story is, again, that that most believe white nationalism was to blame. Now, white nationalism, which we're going to define in a moment. But as you think about white nationalism, for me, I think about a group Right. An organized kind of a group 
who are advancing an ideological position. I'll, I'll define it a little bit better uh, he, here in a bit. But at the same time, when I think about white nationalism or, or white nationalism being the, the blame, there seems to be zero, and I mean zero connection, to any outside group or purposed promotion of, na- of white nationalistic ideology. In fact, when, when asked, right, the man's parents, the man in El Paso, his parents, they had no idea that their son was even involved or held any kind of racist ideas. There, there was no one after this incident in El Paso, there was no one marching to advocate for white power after the shooting. There was no one calling for the freedom of, of the man who shot the people at the Walmart. Now, by all accounts, the vast majority of anyone connected to the El Paso shooter had moved to disassociate themselves uh, with him as they disavowed his actions. Furthermore, while there was evidence of racism on the part of the shooter, not one so-called white nationalist group has laid claim to training or educating this man in any particular ideology. I, I, I point that out for a reason because in the instance of the of the of the folks in the other instance of the of the uh, the man in Philadelphia, shortly after the shooting, black advocates quickly made up signs of support. And they accused the police of overreach as they believed that this man had every right to access a firearm. Now, I, I guess what 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 the folks who were advocating for the, the Philadelphia shooter didn't know was that that shooter had a mile long rap sheet and that there were laws in place that would have kept him based upon the inf- the the previous infractions to law to to, to the laws on the books. Those infractions would have kept him from being able to own a firearm altogether. Needless to say, those who were advocating for this particular shooter didn't care about that at all. These advocates, they began circulating on uh, on social media uh, and and in the area that that they were going to put a march together and their march that they wanted to put together was in order to see the, the assailant freed from custody. Right. Because they they finally get get this guy. They put him in jail and black advocates immediately rally, uh, put together a rally, get on social media and say that, hey, we're going to march in an effort to see this man uh, who who committed this, you know, this shooting. Uh, We want we want to see him freed. Now, the marches organizers were expecting to see several hundred people in attendance. And to add insult to injury, and I, I, I mean this literally, the police department who had six of its members shot that, that, that had been involved in this hours-long standoff with this guy, they were subject to being in attendance. They were subjected, rather, to being in attendance at the rally. So keep this in mind. Police officers who days before had been pinned down by a gunman were now at a rally where people were advocating for this gunman. So those who were demonstrating were advocating for the gunmen and the police were there for the protection of the demonstrators who were who had pulled this rally together. In other words, to, to really rally against them, against against the police officers and their actions. Now, all of this, all of this taking place with zero cries from the media regarding any kind of black nationalism or black supremacy or anything resembling the scare tactic, tactics used to get people concerned about white nationalism. So, again, in the one incidence, you have a kind of a lone shooter, again, killing a lot of folks, um, harming others. 
He's associated with white nationalism. No group, no organization, nobody advocating for his position. Other guy, black group, advocating for him. Other guy, black male, involved in, 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 in criminal behavior, shoots six officers, and has black advocacy groups rallying to his cause. No cries of black nationalism, black supremacy, or anything else. Um, I, I just thought that was very, very interesting. Now, while the stories that I'm telling are simple examples of this kind of thing, I can assure you that it wouldn't be difficult to spend an entire hour walking you through numerous stories with proven bad actors where where the whites disavow the actions of, of their so-called community while blacks seem to advocate for the black, bad actors and their so-called community. Now, now to be clear, <laughs> I know that statement was tough to swallow. To be clear, I'm generalizing, right? As I realized that not all blacks or all whites um, in any specific manner, uh, believe or behave in, in, in one way or another based upon ethnicity. However, I think you get the point that I'm making. As, as we've discussed this at length on the Just Thinking podcast, we talked about the tribalism that often seems to be prevalent in certain communities. Now, now the real question that we should be asking is why does this kind of thing happen, right? What's at the core of the kind of tribalism or black nationalism, if you will, uh, that, that we see uh, evidenced in, in, in the story like the one I just mentioned? And why isn't it being pointed out? I, I think those are fair questions to ask. And, and, and I want to ask and kind of address those as we move forward. But let me let me stop here and just and, and just simply kind of take you back for a bit. It was the year 2005. Uh, that I would be introduced to the writings of economist Dr. Thomas Sowell. Now, for those unfamiliar with Dr. Sowell's work, Dr. Thomas Sowell is, is an American economist and, and a social theorist. Right, Dr. Sowell is, is still serving as a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. And Sowell has written more than 25 books, all of which I'd recommend. Sowell used to be a syndicated column columnist. He's writing for Forbes, National Review, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Times, the New York Post. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Now, Sowell has since retired from his syndicate writing as of December 2016. And man, that was a sad day for me when that happened. I would, I would, I would get up every, I would say that he would write an article almost weekly. And I, and I, I remember uh, getting up, racing to my computer to see what he had written so that I could just kind of devour it. That's kind of how how intensely I, I, I enjoyed everything that he wrote. And he, he has influenced more uh, conservatives. In fact, Rush Limbaugh, of all people, has said that, you know, Soul uh, is kind of responsible for educating him as well. And again, I, my goal is not to not to expose you to Soul for the purpose of politics, but to introduce you to his writing from a standpoint of of what he represents in from a standpoint of, of taking economics and and examining uh, evidence uh, on the basis of looking at, at kind of social theory. Right. And, and, and it's really it's really a powerful combination. Now, at the time that I was exposed to, to Seoul, I was a feature on an urban radio talk show. Uh, which, again, urban radio talk is kind of code for black owned radio <laughs> radio station um, in most instances. Right. This particular station that I was on was was a black owned station where the ideological leanings of the vast majority of the audience were very, very liberal. 
Now, it was Soul's work that helped to inform my thinking. And to this day, I, I, I simply regard Thomas Soul as an American treasure. One of the first books that I that I ever read of Dr. Uh, Dr. Soul was a book that he published in 2005. And it was called Black Rednecks, White Liberals, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Now, in the book, Soul makes the argument that that the, quote, black ghetto culture, end quote, which claims to be authentic black culture, is highly dysfunctional white southern redneck culture, which existed during the antebellum South. Let me say that again. In, in the book, uh, Soul makes this argument that, quote, black ghetto culture, which claims to be authentic black culture, is actually highly dysfunctional white southern redneck culture which existed during the antebellum south this culture i'm I'm continuing to quote from from the thesis of the book this culture came in turn from quote cracker culture of the north britons and scots irish who migrated from the generally lawless border regions of britain so here here's what he argues in his book he argues that the the culture that we now hold dear as urban black culture, a lot of this that you'll see in hip hop culture, um, a lot of this that you'll see in kind of um, amplified. Uh, gosh, I, I wish I could remember the uh, the uh, the videos that you. That, I mean, whether whether it's whether it's hip hop uh, urban culture uh, that you see in in uh, that's represented in videos. Um, and, and other places and spaces, when you see that that happening, that that is actually an amplification of a of highly dysfunctional white southern redneck culture and that that culture migrated into our country from from the North Britons and, and Scots Irish. And, and these people, these people groups were lawless where they were in their in their country when they migrate, when they immigrate to America. Uh, they hold on to that culture and that most of those people migrated not migrated away from northern cities in the United States and migrated into the south and would later become slave owners. I mean, y- y- I would encourage you to grab the book. It's incredible. It's an in- it's incredibly compelling uh, and it's incredibly well documented. So in the book, Soul argues that the stereotypical urban black culture that some proudly display is not unique to blacks, but that it was learned behavior from poorer, often criminal elements of white culture that migrated to southern states and that would later own slaves. While the book is compelling on its own, as I thought about our current culture and how it's renaming and reframing narrative, Soul's arguments in this book title and this book title came to mind. So I went from black rednecks and white liberals to black nationalists and white fatherlessness. And so that's that's kind of where I stole the title from. Soul's book, Black Rednecks, because often you associate um, whites with redneck behavior. But he, he used black rednecks and then white liberals. Uh, I went black nationalists because you often associate nationalism with white nationalism and then white fatherlessness, because I believe that fatherlessness is what permeates black culture. Uh, and it's and it's really causing its demise and harm. So I, I talk about that. I'll I'll talk about that as we move forward. So here's my thesis. My thesis in this instance is the following: one of the biggest threats to the so-called black community, and I put black community in in air quotes, uh, is not white nationalism, but rather black nationalism, which is really tribalism. 
This particular internal threat impacting the black community comes packaged with all kinds of immoral behavior, seemingly ignored, often overlooked, and at times rewarded on the basis of historic racism in America. So let me start again. This is my thesis. It's one of the big that one of the biggest threats to the so-called black community is not white nationalism, but rather black nationalism, which is really tribalism, black tribalism. And this internal threat impacting the black community comes packaged with all kinds of immoral behavior, seemingly ignored, often overlooked and at times rewarded on the basis of historic racism in America. Now, I'll delve into this a bit, a bit in, in, in further as we uh, as we journey through our time together. As for the aspect of white fatherlessness here, here are my thoughts. Whites, primarily through liberal policies, have perpetuated fatherlessness within the black community, which at its core is destroying the so-called black community with no remedy to the root of the problem. And of course, what I mean by no remedy is that all of the solutions are political solutions that only exacerbate the problem. The problems are not fixed by political means, but by the power of God on the human heart through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as we do on just thinking, let's start by what I mean by black nationalism. Now, for this definition, I thought I'd go to the experts of the Southern Poverty Law Center, the SPLC. Now, this this organization, by its own definition, is dedicated to the quote fighting to fighting hate and bigotry and to seeking justice for the most vulnerable members of our society Uh, using litigation, education and other forms of advocacy. The SPLC works toward the day when the ideas of equal justice and equal opportunity will be a reality. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Southern Poverty Law Center, this is a left-leaning organization. So my thought was, let's, let's pull definitions from their thought process. Let's pull definitions from where they stand. And uh, there was something I really found interesting when I looked for a definition from the SPLC for black nationalism. But first, let me read you their definition. And perhaps you'll see what I saw from the outset. Um, it said this, black nationalism. The black nationalist movement uh, is a reaction to centuries of institutionalized white supremacy in America. I'm quoting. So let me let me start again. Quote, the black nationalist movement is a reaction to centuries of institutionalized white supremacy in America. Black nationalists believe that the answer to white racism is to form separate institutions or even a separate nation for black people. Most forms of black nationalism are strongly anti-white and anti-Semitic. Some religious versions assert that black people are the biblical quote, chosen people, end quote, of God, end quote, right? So black nationalists, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, right, cannot be blamed for their own racism. They are simply a reaction to centuries of institutionalized white supremacy in America. Now, did you catch that? The slavery, while slavery rather, and particularly Jim Crow, ended long ago and furthermore was centralized to much of the South. The SPLC presupposes that all blacks who are who are black nationalists were simply reacting to some historic legacy for which many of them never lived through. That's what I thought was interesting when I read their definition. I thought it would would be particularly interesting to examine the term white nationalist and see if there were any any, you know, any similarities or contrast 
to make. So the SPLC defines white nationalism in this way, quote, white nationalist groups espouse white supremacist or white separatist ideologies, often focusing on alleged alleged inferiority of non-whites. Legend, yeah, inferiority of non-whites. Groups listed in a variety of other categories are the Ku Klux Klan, neo-Confederates, neo-Nazis, racist skinheads, and Christian identity. They could also fairly be described as white nationalists. So those are the groups, Ku Klux Klan, neo-Confederates, neo-Nazis, racist skinhead, and Christian identity uh, could fairly be described as white nationalists, end quote. So according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, if you identify as Christian, you could be fairly described as white nationalist. Now, I, I know that many uh, in in the uh, in the woke scold who are uh, involved in uh, uh, evangelical circles would probably agree with that that particular definition. I actually prefer the white nationalist definition for what I'll call black nationalism. So here's here's my definition: black national black nationalist groups espouse black supremacy or Black separatist ideologies, often focusing on the alleged inferiority of whites. Groups listed in a variety of these categories would include Black Lives Matter, the Nation of Islam, the Woke Scold, and the vast majority of Woke Hollywood. <laughs> so that's that's the definition that I'll be working with in our time together. Now, first, I want to address how I landed on the idea that black nationalism espouses black a black supremacist ideology. Now, while there are some things in which blacks believe themselves to be superior to whites solely on the basis of ethnicity, most publicly decry racial stereotypes. Right. We all have to admit, though, that many, many stereotypes have at their core some level of truthfulness. Now, while I wouldn't give these stereotypes validity on the basis of ethnicity, we all have to admit that culturally, there are some things that open themselves to debate as to whether or not they're an accurate depiction of a particular ethnic group. But I digress. In the instance of black superiority, the superiority of blacks that, that blacks hold to is on the basis of of a moral standing as a result of enduring oppression. So let me say that again. Blacks who hold to the idea of black superiority over whites do so on the basis of moral standing as a result of enduring oppression. The fact that blacks in the past, as a result of, of the history of slavery, have endured oppression, many believe, lead to them being morally superior to whites. Now, we see this standard time and time again in the language that we hear from, from woke culture. The, we hear that in language as subtle as things like, you know, whites need to check their privilege, uh, to something as dramatic as 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 the idea that whiteness is something to be repented of. And if you've been following just thinking, we've covered a lot of this subject matter. We've covered a lot of this ground in the past. Far too many black nationalists have ascribed to themselves inherent virtue on the basis of the level of melanin in their skin. And the result is a level of subtle. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm being kind, a level of su subtle black superiority. Even in the in the embrace, in the face of an embracing of victim status. So they, they embrace their victim status, but they do so in an effort to claim moral superiority over whites, thereby holding to the idea of black superiority and white inferiority. I hope that argument makes sense. Well, I do believe that black nationalism is a problem 
Yeah, and, and, or let me say it this way. Why do I believe? That's the question. Why do I believe that black nationalism is a problem in the so-called black community? Well, there are two major outcries that we hear from those who embrace black nationalism. And they are these. One is reparations. And two is that there is institutional racism in the form of police brutality. Right. And this police brutality is what lends itself to the killing of black people. And while the first has yet to gain traction, right, reparations, it's yet to gain traction other than the empty promises of politicians. The second has resulted in a national movement known as Black Lives Matter. So let's start with the first issue with regard to reparations. We've done an entire episode Daryl and I have, have addressed the issue of reparations and our position on on slavery reparations. In fact, uh, if you go back and, and, and take a listen through kind of our, our, our library of episodes, the uh, the particular episode on on slavery reparations is, is probably one of our more popular uh, episodes. So I would encourage you to take a listen to that. Let me quickly lay out why this discussion uh, of reparations, why the discussion of reparations in no way helps blacks today. Number one, slavery is is a worldwide evil that happened to people of every ethnicity at one time or another. So continuing to revisit these evils of the past for the purpose of reparations only separates us in the present and it cannot sufficiently adjudicate the past. Let me say that again. Slavery was a worldwide evil that happened to people of every ethnicity at one time or another. So, therefore, continuing to revisit these evils of the past for the purpose of reparations, it only separates us in the present and it cannot sufficiently adjudicate the past. Dr. Thomas Sowell in his book, Discrimination and Disparities, says this, and I quote, The confining of the discussions of slavery to that of blacks held in bondage by whites is just one of the many ways in which the agendas of the present distort our understanding of the past, forfeiting valuable lessons that an unfiltered knowledge of the past could teach. At a minimum, the worldwide history of slavery should be a grim warning for all people and for all time against giving any human being unbridled power over other human beings, regardless of how attractively that unbridled power might be packaged rhetorically. Edmund Burke said more than two centuries ago, in, in, in history, a great volume of unrolled, uh, a great volume rather is unrolled in our instruction, drawing the materials of future wisdom from past errors and infirmities of mankind. But be warned that the past could also be a means of, quote, keeping alive or reviving dissensions and animosities, end quote. Now, our, our modern day politicians know and understand what, what, what Soul is referring to and what Edmund Burke stated. They, they know it all too well, right? The dissensions that they are keeping alive by having the discussion of paying present day reparations for past evils do no one uh, good. I mean, they, they help no one rather than rallying all people of goodwill to the same point saying never again to such evil. They, the politicians, would rather divide all of us for the purpose of their own personal political gain. We should reject 
all politicians who would seek to divide this country on the basis of sins of the past. I mean, that should be as, as soon as as soon as a current day politician reminds us of some sin of the past for which they intend to adjudicate in the present, uh, when especially when all of those who created the sins of those past are long gone, we should immediately reject them. We should immediately reject them. Now, it would be European whites who would abandon slavery long before the slave trade would end in America. And so for some that that are that are uh, that follow kind of that that woke ideology, that 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 social justice warrior uh, uh, ideological position that whites are inherently sinful or whites are inherently evil, it would be European whites who would abandon slavery right long before the slave trade would end in America. In fact, famed abolitionist William Wilberforce, three days before his death, would sit would would have the Slave Abolition Act of 1833 read into law, abolishing slavery throughout the British Empire. Now, as I've walked through the information about the abolition of slavery, William Wilberforce, if you're unfamiliar with this, I would encourage you to go and do your research and study this up. It's incredibly important. Uh, for us to know uh, and from a historic standpoint. There was something in that act, though, that was provided that I thought was incredibly interesting. It, actually, the act in 1833 that was, that was signed into law actually provides for reparations. It provides for reparations. I was shocked to learn this as I kind of went, went back through and looked at it. And so here, here's something that I thought would be of interest to you. Now, I wish I had a drum roll for this, um, but the act would later in 1837 provide reparations, drumroll please, to the slave owners, to the slave owners, reparations to the slave owners. That's right. Slavery reparations were paid, but not to the slaves, but to those who held slaves, the slave owners. Now, they did this on the basis that that the that that those who held slaves held slaves legally. Right. This it wasn't illegal for them to hold slaves. But that for the slaveholders to let go of these slaves, that they needed to be compensated because the slaves at the time were considered property. And the government had taken these slaves or this property from the slave owners. Now, it was interesting as I, as I looked at this, the British government would pay the equivalent in, in 2013 dollars, right, of 17 billion dollars. To the slave owners. <laughs> so the government of Britain took out a loan in order to accomplish this. And it's been said that it was finally paid. The loan was finally paid off in 2015. So slavery reparations is probably not the direction we want to go. And it doesn't seem to work well doing the research of history. And this, this kind of thing may simply add insult to injury for some. So instead of walking you through all of the reasons that I believe that that the promise of reparations is actually a delusionary tactic. It is a delusionary tactic. Let me say that again, that walking you through all of the, the, the reasons uh, for, for, you know, against slave reparations is not my goal. And in fact, I believe that it is the promise of reparations by, by politicians is a delusionary tactic perpetuated on the emotions of black people. And fomented by black nationalists like Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, and the vast majority of the Democratic Party. And, and I'll simply point you to, again, back to our episode on slave, rep slave reparations for a full treatment on that particular subject. And let me stop there and just quickly move into the second point that I want to make on the topic. And I believe that the outcries of black nationalism, 
that, that they're a detriment to the black to the so-called black community. Now, the second thing that I believe is a problem is the outcry that that institutional racism exists and it's expressed in the form of police brutality. So that's the second outcry uh, from from those uh, who hold this position. Many groups, particularly Black Lives Matter, have claimed that police officers are killing black people in just record numbers. I'll be the first to admit that there's indeed individ- that there are indeed individual black <laughs> individual black actors. I do I do admit that there are individual bad actors that have worn a police uniform. However, the idea that police as a group are inherently racist and are randomly at will without penalty killing blacks in the streets that the numbers just simply don't bear that out now while it would be it would be easy to take up our time walking through fbi statistics that expose the number of blacks that are killed each year by police i would rather address the issue from another angle so let me let me take a look at that angle it's it's this i i want to begin by leveraging the information from a poll done by McClatchy and Marist uh, in December of 2014. Now, the findings that were published, the, the findings uh, of, of the McClatchy poll was done, was published in an article called Ferguson and Beyond Race Permeates Views of Law Enforcement. Now, in the article, the poll cites the following, quote, whites and people of color report very different subjective responses to encounters with police. Half of whites say that they have a, quote, great deal of confidence, end quote, in police to gain the trust of those they serve compared with only 22 percent of blacks. Now, whites are much more likely than blacks or even Latinos to say that their experience with police has been mostly good. Now, this from the Cato Institute, it was an article published in 2017. It says the following, and I quote, while 68 percent of white Americans have a favorable view of police, only 40 percent of African-Americans and 59 percent of Hispanics have a favorable view. Attitudes have changed little since 19, the 1970s when 67 percent of whites and 43 percent of blacks reported favorable views of police. Racial minorities uh, do not have monolithic attitudes toward police, but this report finds that Hispanics' perceptions of police occupy a, quote, middle ground between blacks and white Americans' views. So from the 1970s, blacks' favorable view of, 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 uh, of police were a little bit higher at 43 percent. And of course, more recently, uh, as of 2016, it had dropped to 40 percent. And um, and so that's that's the that's the. Uh, the article published from the Cato Institute. Now, blacks perceptions of police are based upon the again, based upon these two studies alone are, are relatively low, 40 percent. So that means 60 percent don't have a favorable view of police. Now, some of this is due, I believe, to the constant narrative that blacks suffer disproportionately under the hands of police officers. This is, this is constantly perpetuated in the media. Right. Blacks uh, suffer at, you know, poorly, disproportionately at the hands of police officers, even though even though the facts uh, time after time, study after study don't seem to bear that out. Far too often, the narrative uh, of many black nationalists is is this. They tell blacks to ignore the authority of police and or to resist police arrest. It would be easy for me to pull up quotes from civil rights leaders, politicians, Hollywood elites, hip hop artists and even preachers telling those in the so-called black community to question, to challenge and even to run from police. 
However, I want to I want to focus on something that will lead directly into the other points that I want to make. But before I get there, allow me to add this statistic from the Department of Justice, which states this, quote, although blacks represent 15 percent of the population in 75 of the largest counties in the U.S., they were charged with 62 percent of all robberies, 57 percent of murders and 45 percent of assaults, end quote. And this is, again, statistics from the Department of Justice. The problem here could simply be a problem of high frequency where blacks disproportionately come into contact with police officers, thereby increasing opportunities for treatment they deem unfair. Right. But sadly, like like these, uh, you know, sadly, facts rather like these are often ignored and deemed racist on their face. In other cases, the actions of a minority of people are blamed on societal pressures or even worse, systemic racism. So here you have a, a even within the black community, if you go and dig down into the statistics, it is a small group of, of blacks who are committing a high, high percentage of the criminal behavior. And so this is it's a minority of a minority. But unfortunately, they, they are involved in so much of the criminal activity that they're the ones that are they're the ones reporting uh, because they're coming into contact with police officers. And so they're saying, hey, the treatment is unfair. It's 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 bad. It's you know, here's what's happening. Now, young people in these communities are taught to have disdain and disrespect for police officers, thereby, again, increasing the likelihood of violent interactions with police. Messages from people like Colin Kaepernick, Black Lives Matter and insert your favorite hip hop artists with lyrics that add fuel to the fire with police. I'd argue that theirs is the message that is responsible for the taking of black lives in many instances. Now, I, I recognize that 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 the last thing that I said is is challenging to some. And, and I, man, I'm totally open to criticism uh, on that basis. And, uh, and and again, that we just that's how we do things here. At just thinking. I do believe, though, that instead of the messages that you hear from people like I mentioned, Colin Kaepernick, Black Lives Matter and your favorite hip hop artist. Instead, we should be sharing messages like like the one being promoted by men that I, I respect, uh, like Josh Bice and an article that he wrote entitled Stop Using Michael Brown as a Social Justice Tool. Bice says this, quote, racism is an ugly monster that is alive in our nation we see it in specific pockets and while it moves in the shadows often it rears its ugly head at times for the whole world to see racism is not a white thing racism is a sin that is rooted in the depravity of the human heart and is employed by all ethnic groups at times when the world is stirred with confusion we must labor to promote the Imago Dei, that all human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, end quote. I, I, I loved what he said because I, I believe that not only was the statement in and of itself true, but what it provides in messaging to those in black culture and whatever culture you're a part of is that all men are sinful and that we could find racism everywhere. Right. And understanding uh, understanding that all men, regardless of their ethnicity, are sinners and capable of sin helps us to understand uh, evil. Right. Racism when we encounter it in the culture. Teaching young people, however, that police officers are inherently racist and are the products of systemic racism. It absolutely helps no one. And it sets up those encountering police for harm. 
I mean, that's the bottom line. I want to quickly quickly address uh, the back half of my thesis, the issue that whites primarily through liberal policies have perpetuated the fatherlessness within the black community, uh, which at time, which which really is at the core of destroying the so-called black community. So let me say this. I, I recognize that fatherlessness is a choice on the part of a man who's engaged in a relationship with a woman that resulted in a child being born and that it is the sole responsibility of that man to do what he needs to do to maintain his status as a father in, you know, in, in the life of the child. So I'm not blaming white culture for this, but I do believe that the liberal policies that have been enacted perpetuate the conditions for fatherlessness that, that, that allow women to make poor choices, that allow men to make even poorer choices uh, with regard to what they do and, and how that all, uh, all, how all that plays out. It would be the great society programs instituted by then-President Lyndon B. Johnson that would begin the war on poverty in America. And later, later Moynihan, the Moynihan Report called the Negro Family uh, the Case for National Action. That would come out in 1965, and that report would be the springboard for policies aimed at poor black families. Now, it would provide a social safety net in an effort to end poverty, but also at times these hand-ups would simply be used as handouts for single black motherhood that during the Moynihan Report in 1965 only represented single motherhood, only represented 26 percent of the black population. And again, that was in 1965. Now, fast forward to 2018, where a, a, a child being born out of wedlock in the black community represents almost 72 percent of children uh, born in those instances. If if systemic racism is the cause for the increase, someone is going to have to explain how 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 things are more racist today in 2019 than they were in 1965 at the time of the Moynihan report. So the question then becomes, what happens to the children uh, who are in who are in these fatherless homes? What happens? What happens to these these kids? Well, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. There are 19 million children who are born in single parent homes. One out of four children live without a father. In the black community, the, the, the statistics are more dire. It actually represents three out of four children. Three out of four children live without a father in the home. These children are four times uh, are four, are at a four times greater risk of poverty, at a seven times greater risk of pregnancy as a teen are more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, are more likely to go to prison, are more likely to commit crime, are twice as more likely to drop out of high school. I mean, I could go on and on and on with the statistics. They are just unbelievable. But but the policies that are reflected in these communities do not help the situation. These the, the policies of those in political power are not increasing personal responsibility. Rather, they're hindering personal responsibility. And by and large, the so-called black community has been the focus uh, has has been focused rather on creating political capital rather than human capital. What do I mean by that? The black community has been so focused on increasing their political prowess through, uh, you know, getting the right uh, representatives to represent them. And really, I mean, the, the election of Barack Obama was the was the, you know, 
the crescendo of all of that, right? We felt as if the political power we needed was to have a black man in in the highest office in the land. And at the end of the day, what where did that where did that get us? I mean, you know, we we can't we can't think that that a savior is going to come from 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 politics or from the from the political realm. Rather, what we need to do and understand is that 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 we need a savior and that that savior comes from the sovereign God of the universe who sent his son Christ to die on a cross. And that from that we are created in his image, in the image of God, and, and that we have human capital, that it is that is that which resides on the inside of you and us as 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 image bearers of God when we image that God. And what do I mean by when we image that God? When we're when we are walking in a manner that's reflective of the very image of God. In a, in a manner that 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 doesn't mar that image, that's when we begin to experience the human capital that 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 operates in behaviors that are moral and right and good and just. <laughs> Those are the kinds of things that turn around our culture. We've been we've been pressing into the idea that what we need is political capital. What we really need is is human capital, right? Human capital on the basis of the imago day on the inside of each and every one of us. What we see rather in our culture is the legacy of the great society where government is God. And what we need in our culture is a legacy of the kingdom of God where God governs the lives of his chosen people. I mean, that's, that's, that's really what's at stake. I, I go back to what Daryl and I always talk about, and which is this. We really do believe scripture when it says that that the gospel is is the power of God unto salvation. It, it is it is that which changes the hearts of people. We spent a, a great deal of time talking about the intentions of the human heart in the last uh, episode that we did, and how there's no law that's going to be put in place that's going to turn around the intentionality of the heart, but that the gospel has impact on the human heart. Right. It takes a heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh that desires to do God's will. The kind of government that we have, that we've set up, that we've established is for those who are able, well able to govern themselves because they recognize their need for the sovereign God of the universe. And I truly believe that it is only at the point at which we get back to that core belief, that core understanding that will see the transformation needed, whether it's in the black community, in the white community, and will you name the community, right? Uh, and, and I always say so-called. Both Daryl and I agree that, 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 these, that these aren't real communities. These are so-called communities that are, that are man-made, right? These divisions that are in place are mythical, that we are all image bearers of God, created in his, his image and likeness. And that our role in, in, in life is to glorify him and, and to enjoy him forever. And the only way for us to do that is to recognize that all of us are sinful human beings in need of a savior. And God is God. Government never serves as a good God. I love it when Daryl says that, that, uh, that, that God, God is not awaiting someone else's election, right? And we, and we can't elect we can't elect a, a, a God. We can't elect a Savior. Saviors aren't elected, right? God elects his chosen people, <laughs> but he's the one who does all the electing. We simply bow the knee, 
repent of sin and place our full faith in him. Well, I just wanted to walk you through uh, this this particular episode and unpack for you the idea of black nationalism, white fatherlessness, that which really impacts our culture, that which really impacts um, those of us who, who who look at this debate through the lens of of social justice, those of us who who look at this debate through the lens of racial divides, that 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 the real divide uh, is when we divide in in our 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 particular areas, our particular ideological um, ethnic um, breakdowns, and and miss the fact that we are all indeed image bearers of one God. I, I'll stop here uh, and, and thank you guys for taking the time to kind of listen uh, to another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. I'm going to encourage you to circle back. I know Daryl will be back next week. Uh, we'll tee up another great topic for you. Uh, we'll unpack it and walk you through that. My hope is that you enjoyed uh, your time on this particular episode. Until then, thank you so much for checking out the Just Thinking Podcast.